Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, welcome to First Move and great to have you with us for a special Oscar week edition of the program. First Move is handing out its very own coveted statuettes this award season, including Best Leading Man, Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, beginning two days of testimony before Congress. This starts on Tuesday. Investors hoping he will clarify the Federal Reserve's rate hike path. Good luck with that. The best economic picture goes to the U.S. labor market for those blockbuster January jobs numbers. Economists say do not expect a repeat performance, however, when new numbers drop this Friday. And finally, the award for best makeup goes to Wall Street. Stock markets making up lots of lost ground last week, even in the face of continued interest rate uncertainty. Tech leading the way, in fact, up more than two and a half percent. A bit U.S. centric, I have to say, on those awards. But the award fever on First Move does not end there. Later on the program, we will hear from the director and the producer of the Oscar nominated short docufilm The Elephant Whisperers. You may have seen it on Netflix, the story of a South Indian couple who adopt and raise an orphan baby elephant ragu. The film delivering a powerful message about the impact of climate change on animal populations and the critical need for greater conservation efforts. A pachyderm packed show indeed. Let's begin with a look at global markets. No elephant size gains so far, at least. U.S. futures are currently higher, as you can see there. Green arrows in Europe, too, after a mixed Asian handover. Stock and solid gains in South Korea and Japan. But a sluggish start to the trading week for Shanghai, as you can see there, down two-tenths of one percent. Investors are reacting cautiously, I think, to Beijing's modest five percent economic growth target for 2023 and its goal to increase military spending by some 7% plus. All this unveiled at the ongoing Chinese National People's Congress. We'll be discussing all of this as well as President Xi's latest moves to shore up power with Leila Miller, the CEO of China's Beige Book, who, of course, is the biggest private data collector in China. So what they're seeing in terms of growth rebound also going to be interesting too. Plenty to come on the show. But first, we do get and begin with the latest from Ukraine where Russian forces are fighting to encircle the eastern city of Bakhmut. This map helps explain the situation today. As you can see, Russian forces now have the city surrounded on three sides and are attacking Ukrainian forces from both the air and the ground. Kyiv vowing to continue to defend the city and to keep a key supply line open. Melissa Bell is in the capital for us. Melissa, Russia has spent months now trying to capture this particular region. Even the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin saying today and emphasizing the symbolic nature of this fight rather than the strategic and operational value, not to detract away from the work of forces there. Just talk us through the latest. Uh, That's right. The American Defense Secretary speaking to that symbolic value. It is also, of course, at this stage, Julia, about 
the amount of Ukrainian blood that has been spilt defending this city. But the message this morning, very much that uh, the Ukrainians intend to keep on trying to buy time. That's been the aim of the last few days and will be, no doubt, of the next few, that every hour, every day that they can hold on to it is an extra day where not only they're preventing a westward move of Russian troops, but it is also about degrading the Russian war capability, its men and its equipment. A meeting this morning here in Kyiv between President Zelensky and his defense staff, uh, suggesting that they're not only looking to hold it, but actually to send more men in. Ukrainian forces giving all they can to defend Bakhmut, or what's left of it. After the longest battle of the war, one of the oldest cities in the Donbass lies in ruins. There were no orders, no decisions were made regarding withdrawal from Bakhmut. There have been no tactical changes. We are holding the defence. Abandoned by more than 90% of its population over the course of the seven-month siege, only those who couldn't leave before are left. The intense fighting means that only five to ten people a day can now be evacuated, compared to the 500 to 600 a day when the evacuation started at the end of February, according to the city's deputy mayor. The Russians throwing all they have at the city, says the deputy mayor. Heavy artillery, mortar fire, airstrikes and a substantial commitment of ground forces, both regular soldiers and Wagner mercenaries. But Russian advances have come at huge cost. Wave after wave of Russian soldiers have been sent to their deaths. And Ukraine has accused Russia of exaggerating its gains, claiming they still control one of the major highways into Bakhmut, a lifeline for Ukrainian defenders, with one Ukrainian commander tweeting that there are many ways still to get into the city. Analysts have questioned the strategic importance of Bakhmut, but that has not stopped Moscow's intense campaign to capture the city, nor Ukraine's existential fight to keep it. The unceasing barrage of artillery fire hasn't just killed or forced out most of the city's civilians, it's taken a huge toll on Ukrainian soldiers too, as the battle turns to close quarters street fighting. But Ukraine continues its fierce fight for victory, even as Russian forces continue to close in on a city that's already a byword for Ukrainian resilience on the battlefield. It's a tried and tested uh, strategy of the Ukrainian forces. If you think back, Julia, to last year, the fights for Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, holding out in besieged cities for as long as they possibly can to wear down the Russian forces, even as they prepare, at the time, successful counteroffensives that followed last August in Kharkiv and in Kherson. Even now, as they hold on to Bakhmut, we know that a spring counteroffensive is being carefully planned. Uh, the question is how much longer they can hold on and how much more this battle is going to cost to all sides, Julia. Yeah, and appalling images that we're showing there, um, to your point. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. Around 5%, that's China's target of GDP growth for this year, the lowest in decades. Military spending is also up slightly on last year to 7.2%. 
These are some of the early announcements from the country's annual legislative session of the National People's Congress. And Mark Stewart has been watching all the details very closely. A growth target of around 5%, maybe the lowest in decades, but it's significantly higher than the acknowledged, what, 3% growth that we saw from China in, in 2023. This year's clearly going to feel very different, and it's a different team managing the economy too. Indeed, Julie, I think one thing that we're looking for from Beijing is the shift in political leadership under Xi Jinping. We could see wholesale changes in the figureheads of different departments, including those that dictate economic policy. That could mean perhaps a new approach to regulation, a new approach to the West and to the U.S. That's something we're going to have to see in the next few days. As you mentioned, this revision of economic projections from 3% last year to 5% this year, I think you may have said it's modest. I've been hearing a lot of different opinions from economists on this. I heard from one economist who felt that it's very much a reflection of the reality and where China is today, especially with its uh, potential to spend or restrictions surrounding spending. Uh, other economists, though, feel that this 5% figure may be a little bit conservative. If you look at some of the data since the zero COVID policies were lifted, things actually may be a little bit more encouraging, especially when it comes to spending. With all of that said, China still does have a lot of challenges. It's still dealing with local governments that have a lot of economic strain because of the lockdowns, the quarantines and the constant testing. Young people are still looking for jobs. And then we have this ongoing housing crisis in China. Also, you did mention an increase of 7.2% in military spending. In many ways, that is a reflection of the environment in the region. For example, in Japan, where I live, we have also seen an increase in military spending because of perceived threats from places including North Korea. Also, late today, we heard from Taiwan's defense minister. He feels that this increase in spending from Beijing is perhaps an indication that China may take military action against Taiwan if it feels that it's necessary. So that's where we stand right now, Julia. Uh, these next few days uh, with the People's Congress in, in Beijing will be very telling about both the political and economic direction of China. Absolutely. And I know you'll be there and, and watching it closely and we'll continue to discuss it. You raised some great points, though, about the scale of the growth that we see this year in particular, and already the signs are incredibly strong. I mean, some of those survey readings from the manufacturing sector, the strongest we've seen in 11 years. We're going to be discussing this later on in the show with Leila Minna, the CEO of China's Beige Book. For now, Mark, thank you so much for that. Mark Stewart there. To Afghanistan now, and a nation in the middle of its coldest winter in more than a decade. Extreme poverty and hunger has been made worse, too, by Taliban policies that prevent aid agencies from doing more to help, as Anna Corrin reports. Fresh snow blankets the hilltops of Gore province in central Afghanistan, creating the illusion of a winter wonderland. But for those who live here, there is no wonder let alone glimmer of hope. Simply staying alive is a daily struggle. For this family, their young son lost that battle. Now they huddle around his hillside grave, offering prayers to six-year-old Wahid, who just days ago froze to death. I miss my brother, and that is why I came to visit him at the graveyard, she says. 
Abdul Zahir moved his family to the township of Ferozko in Gore, looking for work as a labourer. But with an economic and humanitarian crisis gripping Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, he was unable to make ends meet. I had nothing to burn to keep the house warm, he explains. I checked on the children during the night and their bodies were numb. I realised my son had died of frostbite. This is a photo of him last year, he says. And this is his dead body. An unprecedentedly brutal winter has claimed countless Afghan lives this year. But so too has extreme poverty. This has been exacerbated by the repercussions of the Taliban government's dystopian gender policies and the response by the international community. Almost a year ago, the Taliban banned female secondary students from attending school. That has morphed into a nationwide ban on all female education. But it was the Taliban's decision in December banning women from working for non-governmental organisations that forced humanitarian aid groups to abruptly halt or suspend operations. There is 28 million Afghans in desperate need at the moment. 28 million, and we're not even reaching a fraction of those. The Norwegian Refugee Council says they normally help 700,000 Afghans each year, but their operation has been drastically pared back. Its Secretary-General recently travelled to Kabul, pleading with the Taliban to allow female aid workers to return to work. It's at its worst hour. It's never been as bad as it is now. 35-year-old Sephora wipes away her tears as she grieves for her husband, who perished from the cold also in Gore province, father and breadwinner for their eight children, the youngest just two. Now she's wondering how to keep her family alive. I have no education, she says. My children need food. What should I do? Three of her children are girls, including 12-year-old Mamlakat who knows all too well what happens to poor young Afghan girls who reach puberty. I am worried that if we don't have food, my brothers will be forced to sell or marry me under pressure, she says. I don't want to get married. I'm a kid. I don't want a husband. US charity Too Young to Wed says it's been able to provide emergency aid for the family and many others. But founder Stephanie Sinclair says the avalanche of need is overwhelming and they're unable to help everyone. To me, it's unconscionable that the, that the international community is not paying more attention to what's happening to women and girls in Afghanistan. It is simply just inexcusable that we're not doing everything in our power to try to change the course of what's happening there. We have to do better. And with the UN predicting two-thirds of the population will require humanitarian aid this year, Afghan children like Mamlakat can only hope the world is listening. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini is calling the poisoning of hundreds of schoolgirls across the country a, quote, unforgivable crime. That's not enough for furious parents, though, who are taking to the streets of Iran calling for action. Azan Emel Bagheer reports. Furious parents outside an education office in Tehran. Challenging Iranian authorities 
desperate for answers. After what is believed to be the worst day of incidents of suspected poisonings at girls' schools, these videos were filmed on Saturday, which marks the start of the school week in Iran. For months now, Iranian schoolgirls and their families have been speaking out about incidents of suspected poisoning. The numbers of incidents reported to CNN in the dozens. Then, over the weekend, dozens more. CNN was able to verify these new incidents using video and witness testimony across 10 provinces. The US and others are calling for Iran's authorities to investigate these incidents. But speaking to CNN, medical sources say they have been barred by hospital administrators from sharing details of symptoms and test results, even with the patient's parents. We dubbed this doctor's voice for his safety. I'm inside Iran. My phone is being monitored. I can't share any more with you. Iran's interior minister, after months of vague statements, now says suspicious samples have been found and are being assessed at laboratories. Parents, though, say they don't trust authorities to investigate. To hell with this country and its rulers. We would be better off without a leader. This is our country. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even have medicine. All the incidents begin in a similar manner, as described to us by students. A noxious smell and then... I felt dizzy and fainted. I had dimness of vision and heart palpitations. All of us had identical symptoms, palpitations. My hands and legs were numb and frozen. I was shaken. We had tears coming out of our eyes. With no one so far held to account and parents no closer to answers, many continue to risk their lives to challenge Iran's authorities. Ne'mal Baghir, CNN, London. Okay, coming up here on First Move. An Oscar nomination celebration, a powerful story of love between humans and these adorable animals. The creators of the Elephant Whisperers, coming up later in the show. Welcome back to First Move. China's annual rubber stamp parliamentary session of the National People's Congress is now underway in Beijing. It confirms what's seen as a major shakeup of the country's leadership, including the team in charge of the economy. A group of Western-educated, reform-minded officials, including Premier Li Keqiang, now replaced with President Xi Jinping's close associates. The session already announcing a more modest growth target of around 5% this year and a slight rise in military spending, as we've already discussed. Joining us now, though, to give us more context, Leila Miller, the CEO of China Beige Book. Leila, great to have you on the show, as always. We call it a rubber stamping of Xi Jinping's top picks, but they're also, I think, considered those individuals that he trusts most. Does that mean he's likely to take their opinion, hear their judgment, or does it remain um, Xi's show? Well, there is a consensus out there that because these are mostly Xi's acolytes or his his uh, compadres from, from past years of governance, that suddenly he's going to open his ears and listen and, and govern in a more consensus-based way. I don't think there's any evidence that that's the case. Uh, certainly, there's more possibility that he that he listens to them because they are loyalists. Uh, but look, this this is the she show. You know, if you look at what uh, what what 
how he has redefined uh, the party, uh, the government positions, the military even. You know, these are This has been restructured in order to give the party, but for, for, first and foremost, she control. So I, I wouldn't expect anyone to be governing China except Xi Jinping uh, anytime soon. What does this mean, though, in terms of policy, particularly as China emerges from from zero COVID? Because if I look at the, the data so far, and there's always the context of um, of what we believe versus what we see, which is why you as the biggest private data collector in China is so important. What are you seeing? Well, there was a weird expectation that, that the People's Congress would be used as a, as a way of just, you know, ramping up growth in a massive way, just a, a real focus on, 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 you know, skyrocketing growth back to back to the old ways. That's not what this is about. This is a, you know, we're getting back to business type of mentality. It's why the growth target disappointed a lot of people. Uh, look, you are going to have stronger growth in 2023 because, you know, firms are getting back to investing and borrowing and hiring. There's going to probably be some measure of revenge consumer spending, at least in services. And the numbers from 2022 are absolutely awful. So even a moderate performance will show pretty strong levels of growth. But I think it's a mistake to think that Xi Jinping looks back the last couple of years, saw all the mistakes he made, has rethought his way, you know, view of the world, and it's going to reprioritize high levels of growth. That's not where China is. That's not where the party is. They are going to deprioritize growth going forward. At the same time, 2023 is not going to look too bad. Oh, there's many questions I could ask to follow that. Let's talk short term and then we'll talk beyond 2023. I remember vividly in in conversations that we had last year, you were saying that firms were saying, look, we're not going to borrow. We're not going to invest. We're not going to hire again. Vitally important until COVID's over. What are they telling you today? And and how does the mood music um, feel? Look, COVID zero is over now. So all these firms, which which did tell us they were not going to be involved, they were not going to reactivate until COVID zero is over. Well, they're going to reactivate now. It was a mistake calling, uh, you know, what happened in November, December, even January, a, a reopening because yet China had pulled off the COVID zero bandaid, but firms were not reactivating. What people were doing is getting sick. And so that has really been the dynamic. December, January, February, you've seen some bounces in 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 uh, you know in travel around Lunar New Year and hospitality and chain restaurants. But the economy is not yet reactivated. When we get into March, definitely April, you're going to start seeing a reactivation of the economy. You're going to see a cyclical bounce back. Firms will get back to business. And so the second quarter should look very good. The question then will be, at the second half of the year, if you've already got an organic recovery, are they really going to want to layer policy support on top of that? I think you should be very skeptical that that's, that's what their plan is. So don't expect stimulus unless it's really needed. And what you're suggesting is it won't be. You use the term revenge spending. And I spoke to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange CEO in Davos, and he said the same. And I I challenged that in some way just by saying, look, you have a high youth unemployment rate in China at this moment. Surely that's going to make younger people a little bit more reticent to spend. There's also huge cultural differences between China and the United States, where where clearly we've seen it and it's supported the economy and a, a relative lack of social safety net. How much revenge spending are we really going to see? Well, I actually agree with that completely. I I think Mm. that you should see in the early months 
there has been suppressed uh, consumption for a long time. So people who haven't been able to travel for three years, they're going to start traveling around the country. People who haven't been able to eat at a restaurant for a while, they're going to start eating out a little bit. But I think you're absolutely right. This idea that there's you know trillions of yuan in in, de- in, in deposits that's been deposited at a bank, they're going to immediately be pulled out so the Chinese consumers, Chinese households could sp- spend. I always have, uh, have, have, have thought that that was a pipe dream. So I think you're going to look at better consumption numbers in the early going, particularly in, in certain services subsectors. But yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. There's there's not a propensity to spend uh, by Chinese consumers. And I think that based on what they have seen the last several years, they're only going to be more restrained and more contemplative about, about how they spend their money. Someone who's um, pretty world-renowned, I think, for investing in a frontier in emerging markets is Mark Mobius, the founder of Mobius Capital Parkets. And Mark Partners. And he was quoted in an interview with Fox Business over the weekend suggesting that he can't get his money out of China and that investors need to be very cautious, particularly international investors. He said that he's having to provide paperwork for where this money came from over the last two decades. Leland, are you hearing anything like that or concerns from international investors that whereas they've had money there in the past, one, they can't get it out or they're very reticent to put money back in, even with the end of zero COVID. Well, I don't know why anyone would be keeping their money in China. It's a closed capital account to start with. And when the economy is really bad, when they when the you know leadership is worried about capital outflows, they crack down on these rules particularly hard. So I, um, I don't know why Mobius keeps his money in China. I, that wouldn't be my pick. Uh, but look, you you have to realize that the system they have will be uh, will be safeguarding the Chinese domestic financial system, and that means making sure capital outflows are not a problem. So yes, we are hearing that, and the worst the the economic data is you know the more stringent they are, if, if things go really well in 2023, maybe they let up on some of this. But look, there's a there's a reason it's called a, a closed economy. Yes, um, there are other ways to get Chinese exposure rather than uh, directly investing it in the country itself. Um, what about beyond 2023? We're clearly going to see a growth impulse. The, the base of 2022 is pretty miserable. So that's going to help the, the numbers, the economic numbers this year shine. And what about 2024? And beyond. Well, that's that's right. The uh, 2023 will look good just by virtue of the fact that 2022 is so bad. So you'll right. you'll see growth pop, but that is not the dynamic that long-term investors should be looking at. You will see a cyclical bounce back in 2023, but the larger dynamic, the more important trend, is the long-term structural slowdown. That is not going away. It has been supported by what the party is saying. Uh, they're being very clear. They're deprioritizing growth. They're walking away from the old stimulus playbook. What they want to do is, is is guide the country towards slower, hopefully healthier growth and more self-reliance against policy pushes in the United States, uh, you know, that, that'll, that'll ring feds advanced technology or investment flows from the country. So th- there is there is not a return to some old paradigm of high levels of growth just because you see better levels of growth in 2023. 2023 will be a head fake for investors going forward, 2024 and beyond. You're going to see much slower growth. And that is what the part is guiding the country to. Quality over quantity, they hope. Leyland, great to have you with us. Thank you. Leyland Miller, they're the CEO Thanks. of China Beige Book. All right, coming up, PAL, payrolls, prices, a consequential period getting underway on Wall Street. Will it be peril or profits ahead? We'll discuss next.
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. investors back at work this Monday. I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. It was a birthday weekend for my mother, too. Happy birthday, mum, for Saturday. And from a birthday greeting to a very important meeting, Fed Chair Jerome Powell's testimony before Congress this week. Just one of the many sizable challenges for investors in the coming days. Lots of important jobs-related data, too, on Wall Street to call it. Perhaps the calm before the storm. Stocks modestly higher after a strong week of trade last week. Morgan Stanley's influential analyst, Michael Wilson, Mike Wilson, saying U.S. stocks still have room to run, at least in the short term. And Christine Romans joins us now. Christine great to have you with us. It's being referred to, I think, in certain quarters as hell week, simply because the sheer (laughs) quantity of data, pretty hellish for consumers, one could argue, too, because the data is so resilient. It means the Federal Reserve have to uh, keep hiking rates. Yeah. I mean, you look at the job market and how the consumer behaves and the Fed, after eight rate hikes, will still have to keep going here. You know, I mean, those are two parts of the economy that have been unbowed to um, all this pressure um, from the Federal Reserve and these higher interest rates. And this week, we're going to get so much information, just so much information. So I really wouldn't even know how to trade this week, to be quite honest, if I were a short-term investor, because you're going to have Powell testimony on Capitol Hill. Well, he'll likely be hammered for doing too much and hammered for doing too little, depending on on who's doing the questioning there. You're going to have all kinds of uh, minor and major jobs data. And the job number on Friday could show some still resilience in the U.S. labor market. We also know we're going to hear a new jolts number. And for wonks like us, we know that means how many um, jobs are out there for every available worker. And it's two to one. So it's a very tight, tight labor market here still. So a, a pretty strong underlying situation for the Fed, a Fed who's been trying to slow this thing down. Yeah. And that two to one ratio, of course, allows workers to have the power to demand higher wages, which feeds the inflationary picture, too. It's interesting because you and I and and the debate continues of a soft landing, a hard landing in the economy and no landing, no landing at all. Just growth continues to go. And I, I posed this question to Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's. And he said, I'm not talking about a no landing. I'm talking about a slow session. So going nowhere fast. Um, But the noises from Federal Reserve board members is, look, we're going to have to continue to raise rates. And despite popular opinion that perhaps interest rates will come down quite quickly, even when we get to the end of rate rises, they're going to stay high. Well, look, and Mark Zandi also makes a really good point, I think, in that for a year now, you've been hearing people say a recession is right around the corner. And for a year, they've been wrong, right? The conventional wisdom has been wrong. And so we don't really know what is around the corner. What we do know is that there's a lot of uncertainty here. There's more risk than we're we're comfortable with. Um, And we've got an underlying, I I just, I I find it fascinating the consumer is is so strong here. The consumer, your last guest called it revenge buying in the Chinese market. But I feel like that's a good word for what we're seeing here. After after the slowdown from COVID and now people are spending on experiences, um, even with inflation, they, they continue to go out there and the job market is still strong and supporting that spending for now. So I guess we just don't know what's around the corner. And that's that's what is so kind of maddening about this situation and why this week, I think, will be a hell week for investors, because you'll be able to read this data a lot of different ways, I bet. Yeah, and that consumer cushion that built up, the $2.5 trillion worth yeah. of, of cash that built up during the pandemic that people continue to spend. Except, Christine, and you and I always do this, and I think it's vitally important to point yeah. out um, that for the lowest quintile of the economy, perhaps even more in the United States, they're in recession. They're already feeling it, and the money that they'd managed to build up, if they managed to build up any at all, is spent. So we always have to be careful of these aggregate numbers, and I, 
I banned it actually while I was talking to Mark. Yeah, no I mean, more I aggregate. I think it's really, I think it's a very good point that the bottom quintile is in a terrible position right now, especially since we've gone off this COVID cliff of, of extra benefits to help people with their food stamps, uh, SNAP benefits, as we call it, with other help, you know, to pay bills. Those things have all expired, including tax breaks for a lot of folks who are the lowest earners. So that's all gone, right? And you still have inflation biting and not coming down uh, very quickly. So a very, very good point to, 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 um, to flag there. Yeah, getting it squeezed on all sides. Yep. Christine Romans, thank you. And in other business news, Tesla shares lower in early trade, down around half a percent. The company cutting prices on two of its most expensive electric vehicles in the United States. The price reductions include 4% off the performance version of the Model S to 9% taken from the more expensive Model X. And also today, TikTok CEO speaks at Harvard University on the future of social media. The speech comes ahead of his testimony this week before U.S. Congress in a few weeks' time, actually. Two Senate members are set to introduce a bill that would allow Washington to completely ban TikTok in the U.S. because of its ties to China. Okay, still to come on First Move, Oscar Buzz for a beautiful baby elephant. I'll discuss Ragu's story with the producer and director of The Elephant Whisperers. That's coming up after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The role of indigenous peoples in protecting our planet cannot be underestimated. According to the World Bank, they make up around 6% of the world's population, but safeguard as much as 80-80% of the Earth's precious biodiversity. Well, my next guests have made an acclaimed film that highlights the bond humans have with the Earth and the animals that inhabit it. The Elephant Whisperers tells the story of Bauman and Belly, a couple in South India who have devoted their lives to taking care of Ragu, an orphaned baby elephant. You can see him here. The buzz around the film has been widespread. It's also the first all-female-led film from India, I believe. And now it's been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. And while the film showcases a unique family dynamic, it also quietly highlights the impact climate change is having on the Asian elephant population. And I'm pleased to say joining us now are the director and producer of the film, Katiti Gonzalez and Gunit Monga. Katiti is the only South Asian woman director nominated for Best Documentary Short this year. Ladies, welcome and huge congratulations. It's a huge moment for you. It's a huge moment, I think, for Indian film, but also for the Elephant Whisperers, whose incredible work you documented. Um, Guni, let's begin with you. The message that you wanted this documentary to send. Uh, For us, this is about conservation. This is about coexistence. It is about uh, getting humans closer to the animal world because there is a way where there is a coexistence between both of them. So we wanted to lean into that, the emotional aspect of uh, the wild and the nature and the man uh, with our film Elephant Whispers. Yeah, and the debt we owe, I think, to indigenous peoples all over the world who protect all of that biodiversity and and ecosystem and the animals for us. Um, Kartiki, that was what was so pivotal. One of the things that was so pivotal about this for me, um, the cinematography is incredible. You did such an amazing job um, with this. But also, this is so personal for you because it's the part of the world where you grew up. 
yes, it, it, it all began when I was driving on my way to from Uti to Bangalore and I saw this tiny little ele- elephant calf on the side of the road. And you had this little calf walking around holding on to Bowman's hand. And I saw that there was this very special bond. So I, I pulled my car on the side and I jumped out and I went and joined them to the river. And the, they were just splashing around in the water and it was just really beautiful. I noticed that there was this unusual family dynamic that was there. And during this time, <clears throat> I also realized that there was this bittersweet beginning to the story because the Asian elephant is just losing its habitat at a very rapid pace due to encroachment and climate change in a fast developing country like India. There are roughly about 35,000 to 40,000 Asian elephants left and the situation is very grim. We're losing elephants at alarming rates due to poaching and human-animal conflict. But I wanted the story to be positive. Why focus on all the depressing parts when we were living in this beautiful place? And I think in this time, there are just so many stories of animals being killed, species dying out. And this was a positive story that highlights the beauty of man and animal working together. I believe coexistence is the way that we move forward into the future. And only with mutual respect and cooperation can we save the planet. Yeah, I mean, the message is so important, Kartiki. Um, I think one of the things that, that I sort of imagined, but I didn't realise until I watched this, is is how tame these gentle giants are when, when they're in this situation. I mean, he's playful, he's naughty at times. There is this sort of parent-child relationship with, the, with his parents and the elephant whisperers, but there's something critical to to these elephants for the, for the society there too. They're a fundamental part of the society. I'm hoping that people will be able uh, to relate to Raghu. So many, so many films show the danger of animals and I wanted to show the love and connection to animals. The elephant is such a large animal and they need to be treated with respect, but they're also loving and capable of lifelong bonds. They seem to have a sense of humor as well. And they have so many similar traits to humans and I hope that people will switch from seeing them as the other and start seeing them as one of us. Yeah, and there's deep spirituality in this too, um, Gunit, if you can comment on this. Because Bauman isn't just an elephant protector, he's also a Hindu priest. And, and one of the quotes for me which really stood out, um, this is God's presence in my life. Without him, we have nothing. And he was referring to Raghu as, as providing that sort of spirituality and that touch point, I think, with God. Yes, it is. Uh, for us, also, it is a sacred bond. Mm-hmm. It is deeply spiritual, um, just watching the whole experience and they their work with um, Raghu and with Amu, their connection with each other. Um, for us, also, this is absolutely a sacred bond between wild and human. And uh, yes, he does look at it as a blessing from God. And there are just so beautiful things that Bowman says, like, you know, we we take <clears throat> we get everything we need from the jungle and we take only as much as is sufficient. You know, so whatever we need, we have. But the concept of sufficiency is so important. And that's what the indigenous community really takes care of. And uh, yes, uh, we do have uh, Ganesha as a lord in India and uh, and they do pray and they do relate to blessings of uh, elephant for their, uh, as, as that is the work that they do, is working with elephants. And uh, this is the first time that this couple was able to 
protect a, a baby elephant and and bring it back um, as as Raghu was orphaned and raise it well to a healthy yeah. elephant. And the story doesn't shy away from that. It is a, a sort of a visual safari and so beautiful in terms of the relationships. But Kartiki, you don't shy away from the fact that um, Raghu was orphaned and how he was orphaned. Uh, so it all went back. Uh, uh, when Raghu was was orphaned, he was actually in this small little village, and his mother got electrocuted. And as they wandered into a nearby village in search of food and water, and I think this is one of the most uh, prevalent examples of climate change in our day to day life. You had this wild herd that wandered into a nearby village in search of food and water, and that's when she got electrocuted and she died on the spot. And here you had baby Raghu who was hanging around next to her body for many days and post that he went and moved off and he joined a herd of cows we started eating grass and i think he, he was not able to get enough food because he he didn't have the stomach of a cow and then after that he sort of resorted to moving towards the local village where he started stealing fruits and vegetables from from the local shops nearby and that's when he got attacked by stray dogs and that's the reason he does not have a tail at this point and that's when the forest officers intervened and and the local people and that's when they realized that they couldn't actually take care of an elephant calf so they gave him some water they helped to dress his wounds and they called bowmen from the forest department to come over and to look after him and after about a month or so after he got slightly more recovered this when they took him back to the camp and they also tried to reunite him with his herd in, at, during that time because the forest department really looks at trying to reunite calves that are often or abandoned to try and find their wild herds and when everything fails is when they actually think about bringing the calf back to the camp yeah and he was 3 months old and i know you were filming this for, for over a period of, of five years um it's just incredible okay very quickly because i have 2 minutes left um fast forward to the moment and we showed the video in the tease where you realized that you had uh, an academy award or an oscar nomination and everyone's jumping around in in huge excitement um it's a huge moment for the elephant whispers here we go this is it i love this <laughs> can you tell me tell me how this moment felt and and what winning would feel like i mean we're already so grateful so grateful to be shortlisted so grateful to be nominated <laughs> uh, we're so grateful to be here for the whole experience the film is live on netflix around the world people are watching it and we are getting fan art from around the world um it has been an experiment it it has been an exceptional experience uh being here working on it uh neil degrasse tyson hosted our screening in new york it has been just incredible from strength to strength to strength i mean if and uh if i feel like the elephants god bless us and we do win it will be historic it's already historic for both of us uh this is kartiki's debut film and uh for both of us to be here it just very very grateful the feeling is surreal and of gratitude filled yeah. with gratitude you're definitely flying the flag for india and female leadership in this case um kartiki i have i have one minute left how will this feel this is your debut what a debut it's absolutely surreal i think on on behalf of a woman and our beautiful elephant friends ragu namu we're just absolutely thrilled to receive this great honor this is helping spread the message of the film and create more awareness empathy and connection to elephants and to other living beings that we share our spaces with 
And I'm just extremely grateful and thankful to Netflix for believing in the power of this beautiful story. Yes. Amen. The smiles say it all. Um, good luck, guys. We're, we're, we're thinking of you. Um, and I do recommend the documentary, as you said, uh, on Netflix. Kartiki Guni, thank you so much. The director and the producer of The Elephant Whisperers there. Thank you. Thank, thank you. All right. Coming up after the break, tackling racism, addiction and Will Smith's infamous slap at last year's Oscars. Chris Rock opens up in a live streaming special on Netflix. We've got the deep. Welcome back to First Move. The actor and comedian Chris Rock finally addressing that slap from Will Smith at last year's Academy Awards. Remember that? Rock was snacked after making jokes about Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. CNN's Stephanie Elam has more. I'm going to try to do a show tonight without offending nobody, okay? I'm going to try my best. You know why? Because you never know who might get triggered. Chris Rock on stage and hitting back at Will Smith nearly a year after the infamous Oscar slap. People say, they always say, uh, words hurt. That's what they say. Gotta watch what you say, because words hurt. You know, anybody that says words hurt has never been punched in the face. (laughs) Will Smith practices selective outrage. Rock suggesting Smith's response to his Oscars joke about wife Jada Pinkett Smith's hairstyle was more about their relationship than him. His wife was her son's friend. She hurt him way more than he hurt me. Rock covered a wide range of topics, including addiction, abortion, and racism, but left some of his sharpest lines for Smith. Y'all know what happened to me, getting smacked by Suge Smith. I love Will Smith. My whole life I love this. My whole life I root for this. Okay? And now I, I watch Emancipation just to see him get whooped. Referring to Smith's role as an enslaved man in the period drama Emancipation. Smith, who has apologized publicly, has said he worries this lap could impact Emancipation's success. My behavior was unacceptable. Rock not holding back, ending the special with this final blow. How come you didn't do nothing back? I got parents. And you know what my parents taught me? Don't fight in front of white people. Stephanie Elam, CNN, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And finally, Toblerone rappers are getting a facelift and you can blame Swiss laws for the change. The image of the country's famous Matterhorn mountain peak will disappear from the packaging. That's because the company has moved some of its manufacturing out of Switzerland and off to Slovakia and is no longer allowed to use certain Swiss imagery in its marketing. It doesn't pass the Swissness test. Also, the rappers now say established in Switzerland rather than of Switzerland. As long as it tastes the same, I can live with that. Also, that mountain looks rather like any of those mountains in the Tatra Mountains, I believe, between Slovakia and Poland. I wouldn't change a thing. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.